At a popular bakery cafe, residents of New York City's Upper East Side get bagels and coffee served with a smile 24 hours a day. But behind the scenes, undocumented immigrant workers face sublegal wages, dangerous machinery, and abusive managers who will fire them for calling in sick. A mild-mannered sandwich maker, Moama Lopez, has never been interested in politics, but in January of 2012, he convinces a small group of his co-workers to fight back. And hence the, uh, the premise uh, of the documentary film, The Hand That Feeds, Sometimes You Have to Make Your Own Justice. It's the subtitle. And we're joined today by one of the co-directors of this wonderful documentary, uh, Rachel Lears. Rachel, welcome to Film School. Thanks, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. You are welcome. Well, how'd you hear about uh, Hot and Krusty and uh, and Mohama and and this whole? How did this unravel in front of you? Well, um, my co-director and husband Robin Blotnick and I were um, were involved in documenting Occupy Wall Street when it exploded in our home city here in New York in 2011. And um, through some connections there, um, I met Maoma and some of the other organizers and workers that he was uh, working with at Hot and Krusty. And this was just after they had begun their campaign um, to get better wages and conditions at the, at the shop. And they were already reaching out to Occupy Wall Street for help potentially to occupy the store. And and they were being very open about their status as undocumented immigrants. And it just struck me that this was a very interesting sort of juxtaposition. Um, it's, it's very courageous for undocumented immigrants to, first of all, to take the step of uh, standing up to their employers to, um, to ask for better conditions, and furthermore, to take the step of um, of making plans for civil disobedience, um, which which would be an enormous risk. That uh, it just it struck me as a very interesting uh, topic, and 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 one that would be developing over time. Um, I have made verite films in the past, and as a filmmaker, I'm always on the lookout for stories that are going to be, um, you know, people going through uh, experiences that um, grow and change over time and, and where the story really unfolds in front of the camera. So, so this story, uh, you know, just kind of on the hunch that something potentially groundbreaking was going to be happening, the story really developed and it, it, it ended up being more dramatic and, than, than I think we ever imagined. You know, this is one of the great things about documentaries and documentary filmmakers. It just continues to amaze me how many projects that we'll never know about are started by documentary filmmakers, and they really just don't go anywhere for, for because you never know what the future holds. There's a lot of factors involved. Money, life moves in and, 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 and takes over people's lives in ways that you couldn't have expected, et cetera, et cetera. But when something comes along like this, like this story and these people and the dynamics involved, uh, that is a remarkable uh, kind of uh, sinking up of life and and art. It just it's it's always amazing to me. And I, it just I'm just curious from your perspective as a filmmaker, documentary filmmaker, how is this? How unusual of an occurrence is this uh, for you to have had this happen? In you know as you as you were telling the story. 
Sure. Well, I, I think it was actually uh, unusual in a number of different ways. Um, first of all, the story kind of reached a, uh, a satisfying ending <laughs> mm-hmm. much sooner than I ever would have imagined as well, you know, within, within a year of beginning to film. And, you know, starting, in, starting a verite story, picking the point where you're going to start the story is very difficult. Picking the point where you're going to end is often even more difficult than yeah. that. Um, as a filmmaker, so I think that um, the, the the way the story took place um, and all the twists and turns that happened and, and the way it ended up was very unusual. Um, I don't know how how far you want to go with spoilers. Yeah, no, I don't. I, the... <laughs> I stay away, stay away from spoilers. Okay, but, but I'll just say that some of the things that happened were very unusual. Yeah. Um, even in the context of these sorts of campaigns, so um, so I think it was unusual uh, in not, in a number of ways for us uh, as filmmakers to to be able to capture uh, such a such a compelling story in such a short amount of time. I mean, all of our other projects have have taken much longer uh, from from start to completion. And, um, and I think it was also unusual in a number of ways from the perspective of these types of campaigns. Um, that said, it's also very emblematic. Of, there are a lot of aspects of it that are, are very uh, sort of typical of labor campaigns and of immigrant worker campaigns, yeah. um, which, are, which are going on all over the country in a, in a lot of different ways. I mean, this is a uh, – it's a small – character-based, well, I don't want to say small, it's like an epic in miniature, Um, a character-based, plot-based story that really touches on these critical national issues that are much more widespread. That's exactly the point um, I was going (laughs) to, thank you for bringing that up, because exactly where I was going to go, which is, as with so many great documentaries, and this is one of them, that it's the micro-macro aspect of it. You are, you're, you're, the window into this world is through the eyes of Mama, Mo, Oma. Let me start over. Maoma. Maoma. Thank you. Uh, through his eyes and through the eyes of his family and etc., that you are introduced into a world that we're all vaguely familiar with. I think we all know when we go into one of these fast food places or place service industry uh, related jobs, we know that these people are not getting paid very well. There's sort of we understand it, but we in some ways we choose to just well, sorry, it's not my problem. I can't. Can't do much about that. This is just the the world we live in. But um, that's when you, w- through his eyes and through his family's eyes and through the coworkers that he uh, he enlists to help with all of this, it really then it's much easier for for someone to hear when they hear about people organizing to be able to place a a, a human face on it because of a film mm-hmm. like the the hand that feeds. Um, so my congratulations to you on that. Thank you. Yeah. Now let's go, let's go back a little bit. So you, sure. you you've been introduced uh, to uh, Mama and his the what's going on? What's going on with the hot and crusty? And by the way, hot and crusty for our audience. Tell us a little bit about how pervasive, how big of a sort of thing it is in New York City. Okay, well, it's a um, Hot and Crusty is a small local chain. Um, there's probably ten or twelve uh, Hot and Crusties in the city. Sometimes a number of them have changed their names over the years, so it's a little tricky to get uh, a sense of exactly how many there are. But they are um, each incorporated 
separately. Uh, So it's not a a chain in the way that we think of uh, necessarily as a chain store that's run by a parent company. Each one is run by a group of investors, and they overlap with with one another in terms of of who's running them. And many of those investors also have stakes in other fast food chains around the city with with other names. So uh, it's not... Uh, at the level of a McDonald's, but it's not a mom and pop either. Well, it's not un- it's not that unusual from the, the McDonald's model in that those are franchises, right? As- Correct. Yeah. Um, but the difference is that so the the name is franchise, but the difference is that um, McDonald's has a parent company hmm. that is sending down a lot of the rules and regulations for how the businesses can be operated, and there's kind of a cookie-cutter model. Mm-hmm. Um, each of these locations is a little bit more... In, there is no parent company, okay. um, and each of these locations is, a, locations is a little bit more independent, I think, than a McDonald's franchise would be. But it's it's true that the they're essentially franchises. But, but the, and the point is, is that these are, this is not, a, as you said, a mom-and-pop operation. And the, and the treatment of the workers, I w- I'm guessing from seeing your film, I'm extrapolating, uh, is pretty consistent. The way that they've been, well, tra- they had been treating their, their, their workers. That was that was our understanding. After the um, after this campaign went public, um, a number of the other locations ended up. Um, workers came forward at those locations, uh, mentioning that similar things were going on. And just to clarify, the type of stuff that was going on that you know a, a number of the workers weren't getting paid minimum wage. Um, that's not the case for all the workers. Some of them were, but many of them were not. Um, uh, nobody was getting paid the legally required overtime. Um, there was a lot of verbal abuse and kind of mistreatment from the manager and um, long hours with no breaks. Uh, they'd be refused sick days. And um, and when they complained, there were threats either to fire them or to call immigration enforcement. So, um, so the most important thing for Mama and his coworkers was really dignity. In the end, um, you know, they were... You know, they were interested in getting paid the legally required minimum wage and overtime, of course, but um, but they were especially interested in, in having more power and voice in the workplace, really bringing democracy to the workplace and having a say in how things were run there. We're talking with uh, Rachel Lears. She is the co-director, along with Robin uh, Blotnick. Also, uh, also uh, Rachel is uh, the producer and cinematographer. Uh, Robin Blotnick is co-director, producer, and editor on this wonderful new documentary called The Hand That Feeds, uh, and it is coming to theaters, uh, I believe, April 10th here, is it, the opening is, well, or the third? We're opening in New York on April 3rd That's at right. Cinema Village, and we are actually, unfortunately, still waiting for confirmation of the date from uh, L.A. It's going to be one of the Lemley theaters either on April 10th or April 17th. Gotcha. So th- those updates will be on our website, thehandthatfeedsfilm.com, any day now. Okay, good. That's that's terrific news. And so, But it is opening in New York on the 3rd, so for the the wide-ranging, uh, the reach of Film School Radio, will people listen all over the country, so uh, be on the lookout for April 3rd. In which theater? I'm sorry. In Cinema Village. Cinema Village. Thank you. Yes. So, um, so what was the one of the more? I mean, obviously the the 
the beginning of the uh, the recognition on the part of the people who are working in the hot and crusty uh, to to really or to begin to organize. Um, and there are a number of other people that become involved um, that are that we have an attorney. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I've forgotten his name. I'm so sorry. Ben Dichter is his name. <laughs> Thank you. And others begin to sort of uh, gather around this group of people that are, well, how did that, let's, I'm not going to speculate. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how they went from let's do something to beginning to pull together an organization? Yeah, absolutely. And that also gets back to a a question you earlier asked, which I didn't manage to circle back to yet, which is what was happening when we started filming. So, um, so the, the first step in, in, Organizing is just talking to your coworkers, complaining with your coworkers <laughs> about what's going on, and um, so uh, what ended up happening with these guys is that um, they had talked to the manager about uh, some of the complaints they had, and the manager basically kind of said, "You know what, we, we, I, I'm not going to do anything about this. If if you continue complaining, I'm going to call immigration." And this really. Um, you know, incensed them, and they had even made complaints to the Department of Labor here in New York, but they hadn't gotten a response for several months. Um, and that's just because there's there's really an overload of uh, for those types of public agencies in terms of enforcing existing labor laws. So, uh, you know, it's it's not that the Department of Labor couldn't or or wouldn't intervene in a case like this. It's just that they got tired of waiting. So uh, there was one worker there who had had experience in the past. Um, with working with a an or, a nonprofit organization that uh, assisted workers in these types of situations, and so he was able to connect them with Virgilio Aran, who is a um, an organizer, and he had just founded a workers center called Laundry Workers Center, which is the organization that um, assisted the workers through the course of the film. Now, a worker center is is basically a nonprofit organization that um, that helps out low wage and immigrant workers with with legal services and various types of assistance in in these types of situations where labor laws are are being broken. So, by the time we met them, they had um, gone through Mauma and Gonzalo, uh, one of the other main characters, had gone through eight weeks of training, uh, learning a lot about their their rights. Because one thing that um, much of the general public is is not aware of, as well as immigrant workers themselves, is I certainly wasn't aware of it until I started making this film, is that um, labor laws do apply to employees regardless of immigration status. Yeah. So, um, so minimum wage and overtime and and um, mo- many of the federal labor laws do apply re- even to undocumented immigrants. Of course, um, undocumented. Workers are very vulnerable to exploitation because many of them don't realize that they have rights under the law, and um, for obvious reasons, they're afraid of dealing with the law. Um, so, uh, so in this case, uh, they had they had learned about the situation. They realized they did have have rights, and they had um, gone through a training program with the Laundry Workers Center. They had um, made their demands to the management public via a scene that appears with some uh, camcorder archival footage in the film because we weren't actually there. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they delivered a, a letter of demands, basically saying, you know, these are, these are the things we want. We want everyone to be paid well. We want safe conditions. We want um, more respect from the managers, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was really a, a key moment. Um, at that point, they had already made contact with um, some Occupy activists 
So, um, so a number of those activists accompanied them into the store for that moment of of really, you know, letting the management know that that they were going to be that they wanted some, to see some changes happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when we had so when we met them they it was it was like a a month or two after that and they had already decided to go into the process of um, filing with the National Labor Relations Board to form their own independent union now that was a really unusual step in this story Um, most immigrant worker campaigns of this sort don't do that the reason these workers wanted to do that is because they're um, the management of the store was willing to negotiate sort of the the wage and hour claims from the past. The mm. fact that they weren't they hadn't been paid minimum wage and overtime in the past, you can negotiate a a settlement for a lawsuit um, to cover those issues. But the workers also wanted changes in the terms and conditions of their employment going forward um, to give them more more power and more more say in, in how things were run at the store and and just and, and they wanted paid sick days um paid vacation etc um some basic benefits and the company wasn't willing to negotiate those things and they said uh in a negotiation session uh, if we, we're not obligated to negotiate those things with you unless you're a union so then the workers went back to the organizers they were working with and said, hey, how do we form a union? <laughs> um, so, so they ended up uh, forming an independent union. And, and when they were getting ready for that election at the National Labor Relations Board was when we jumped into the story. So yeah. the whole first 20 or 30 minutes of the film covers a part of the story that we weren't there. Mm-hmm. So we had to use a bunch of different filmmaking techniques to cover that, obviously interviews of uh, the characters talking about what happened. And they had some archival footage that they themselves had shot, either on small cameras or on their cell phones. Um, we also used some reenactments. Um, we created, uh, we, we you know talked over with, with the people who were, were present, um, you know, what those situations were like and filmed them in, for example, that negotiation meeting I was just mentioning. Yeah. You know, we filmed it at the table where it happened in the office of the lawyers. Yeah. And we had one of the other lawyers from the team kind of uh, act as, you know, just in close-ups of hands, kind of moving papers around the table. Just It's a stylized way of representing uh, some uh, B-roll for what, um, to go with the interview storytelling of what happened in those moments where we couldn't be there for yeah. legal and logistical reasons. And, and of course, as documentary filmmakers, uh, we took some liberties uh, using footage we had filmed later on in the story and placing that earlier uh, kind of to represent things that um, that might have occurred at any time, um, right. such as Malma playing with his kids in the park or yeah. Yeah. Um, or the workers in there, you know, at work in the store. So those are very common techniques. Yeah, and, and I was just going to say, and thank you, Earl Morris, um, for, for <laughs> I just can't, I mean, in terms of documentary uh, filmmaking, I just think uh, what it... What a giant leap forward to me, Thin Blue Line was just because, uh, and it got him in a lot of trouble with the Academy apparently, but I, I, I completely concur that in order to tell the story, I mean, in the, in the interest of accuracy, it is I, absolutely, a, it's a, a well-used uh, technique in, in your film, and I see it in others, and uh, yeah, I, it's, you know. Thanks, I agree. I think it's really, um, it's important for 
I mean, to me as an artist, it's really important to be able to, um, you know, be open to a variety of techniques, you know, acknowledging that everything is always manipulated. I mean, there's no such thing. A camera is not just a truth vacuum that you go out mm -hmm. and there's no such thing as a documentary that doesn't have any type of um, authorial you know, yeah. uh, manipulation happening. You're, you're, you're making a choice every time you, you decide where to point the camera. So at, at every step, there are um, right. choices being made. And well, the whole point. This thing is objectivity. No, no. Opinion, there's so. the, every every edit point, every every mm -hmm. play, like you said, every interview you conduct, in some manner of speaking, uh, is about a point of view. What whether it be in an opposition to something or in favor of. But yeah, I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of. I d it does feel like uh, you're in the in service to this the greater story. You're telling a story. You haven't you haven't misrepresented the story in any way. You're just telling. A story, and you need uh, there are points that you need to fill in some of the blanks, and uh, and that's what this this was about. Uh, exactly, I like to think of it as as telling telling the story with integrity to the to the best of our ability, given you know the the uh, the best we can do in terms of talking to different people involved, some of whom didn't appear on camera. We did speak with um, one of the, the, the lead investor for the company, uh, was not willing to appear on camera, but he did have an extensive off the record conversation with us, which mm. was very helpful for clarifying certain points. So, um, so it, it, that's really what it's about for me is in, integrity. It's just the, telling the story, uh, for the, the good of the greater story, as you say. Yeah, exactly. We're speaking with Rachel Lear. She's the co-director, producer, and cinematographer, uh, as uh, for this film, uh, The Hand That Feeds, um, and also Robin um, Blotnick, his uh, co-director and director, producer, and editor of this film as well. Um, now, a couple of things uh, that just sort of technically, or from a, from a cinematic point of view, uh, there is no narration. It's all on camera words that's um, from the from the participants, the interviews, everything, mm -hmm. which, which I, I that's always a choice. I'm at some point in the making of a movie like this. Do we go narrative? Do we just you know it's all told from the point of view of the people involved? Um, is that was that something that you just that that the st it seemed to call for it? I think um, you know that's a that's a choice, and I have actually never made a film. With narration, um, Robin's last feature documentary before this did have narration, and I, I worked on that as well. But um, I think for this story, um, we really wanted it to to be told from the point of view of um, the main characters, and really to feel as much as possible like a, a fiction film. You know, it's a it's a it's a good story. That's that's why we're following it. It's a um, you know, it, it ends up being there's a lot of tension and drama and power struggle and yeah. um, dramatic plot twists and betrayals. And um, so we really wanted it to feel like, uh, you know, like a narrative film. It's in, to me, the uh, distinction that's often made in the industry between narrative and documentary um, is a little frustrating because documentaries have narrative. Whether they have narrators or not, they have narratives. Mm -hmm. um, so, so fiction and nonfiction, I think, is how I prefer to think of it. And even there, there's there's obviously, um, you know, there's some blurry points as we were saying with reenactments or, or however you want to slice it. Yeah. Oh, I just it's uh, 
again, you know, sort of in service to the story, let's sort of recap here a little bit. Uh, this is a story about a, a group of uh, workers working in a place called uh, Hot and Crusty on the Upper East Side of New York City who have been subjected to not uncommon abusive practices on the part of, of, of business owners, uh, subpar wages, you know, threats of uh, of being fired for asking for the simplest things. I'm sick day. I need to be. I can't work today. These kinds of things were going on. These people got together, organized, and um, through their hard work and through by sticking together, they were able to do some amazing things. And from an organizational point of view, including forming their own union, which, as you it says in the in the film, I mean, it's almost unheard of. For on their first try, they were able to get enough votes to be able to do this. Um, it, the whole thing, it's a, it's a fantastic story in, in every sense of the word. It's a great story, and so many of the things that happen along the way are, as you put it, unusual and, um, and not typical, but encouraging nonetheless. As unusual in some ways as the story may be, it, it is in some ways uh, kind of the light at the end of the tunnel for people who are interested in pursuing this themselves. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. I think that, you know, I, I want to emphasize that as much as it's unusual, it's also very usual. There, there are, <clears throat> the fact is, you know, these types of stories are not very often told in the media. This type of organizing is happening all around the country all the time. And these types of victories, while they may not, you know, there are aspects of, 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 of this story that are, um, that are unusual, but there are a lot of aspects of it. As you said, the abuses are very, um, are very, are not uncommon. And although it's, you know, it's it's not as if everyone who who suffers this kind of thing moves forward and 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 follows this kind of path, but there are a lot of people fighting for similar things around the country. And what we've seen um, since the uh, since we started making the film is the explosion of the fast food movement, yeah. which is um, which is something that's captured a lot more media attention than I think um, low wage worker struggles had in the past. And um, there are, you know, every story is different and it goes in different directions. And there may or may not be, you know, different types of achievements along the way. But um, you know, I think I want to emphasize that this these types of things are happening around the country and it's not, this isn't, uh, it's unusual, but it's not at the same time. I understand. I hear what you're saying. (laughs) There is the sense of, right, if you watch almost any news program in America today, with some exceptions, uh, Democracy Now! pops to mind, isn't there, where you would hear about this kind of a story, but very Mm -hmm. unusual for you to hear about it. And if it is, it it even is framed as sort of this unusual, very unusual events taking Mm -hmm. place. Uh, You have seen a lot more movement. I I think Occupy, for, for uh, for all of its strengths and weaknesses, and it's sort of, that's sort of a subtext in this about the relationship of Occupy to some of these, some of these movements or some of these efforts on the part of people to uh, organize. So uh, that's an interesting part of the film, but I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, mm-hmm. But that th- this this has pushed uh, some more additional coverage. And to your point, there's a lot more of it going on. I know that the fast food worker movement uh, seems to have uh, 
I don't know if it's reached quite the critical mass that we'd like to see it reach, but it's certainly beginning to approach that level. And, and there's a recognition on the parts of municipalities uh, now to, on their own, raise the minimum wage. I think there's a growing awareness whether or not it happens at a franchise at McDonald's or it happens at a city council meeting in the city of Los Angeles or in Portland or wherever, that these things are beginning to kind of shake loose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the, the national conversation about wages and about low-wage work is really um, is really changing in the past couple of years. And it's important to remember that that this concerns everyone because our economy is producing more low-wage jobs all the time. Yeah. This is a trend that's been going on for decades, but especially since the financial crisis in 2008 with this recovery that we're seeing, you know, the middle class jobs have been eliminated and what's what they're getting replaced with is low wage often service sector jobs so um you know we, there's a lot a lot of people assume that it's it's just teenagers or, or or maybe undocumented immigrants that are working these types of jobs or 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 people with with very little education or prospects and and while that's partially true you know the majority of people that are working um low wage jobs are over older than their late twenties, there are many of them. Most of them are supporting children. You know, yeah. there's and and this is increasingly the direction that our economy is going in. So as a society, I think we need to have a conversation about, you know, not just let's create jobs, but what kind of jobs are getting created. Or and, because, and yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Because oh no, just because this is, you know, reversing the tide of economic inequality. This. You know, changing what these jobs are like, making turning these low-wage jobs into living-wage jobs really can raise the bar for everyone. Yeah. Uh, I'm old enough <clears throat> to have grown up in, in, a, in a world, in a work environment, where um, people that were living next door to my family um, were uh, retail clerks. They, were, they worked in a grocery store as a cashier, and they could afford to buy a house— and support a couple of kids and have a new buy a new car every five or ten years or whatever it was. You can't do that anymore. And I think the, the this discussion about the, in some ways a lot of the same jobs are there that were there when I grew up, but now you can't afford to you can't afford to live on those jobs anymore uh, when right. the, on the wages you make. And so this is part of the discussion. Everything has shifted dramatically. Uh, and that, ha you know, there's a lot of reasons. Wait, we're not going to go into all of them. But the fact right. is, is, we've got to have this conversation. We've got to begin to recognize that uh, this growing disparity between the wealthy and, and, and the poor is going to eventually uh, tear the fabric of this country completely apart. And that's just, it just goes without saying that this is, that's why, <laughs> getting back to this, the hand that feeds, sometimes you have to make your own justice is the subtitle to uh, this film that, basically is what this is really about this this film is one story but it's really part of a much bigger picture of of the world that we live in and the world the future really i mean this is our future yeah it's really about people who just sort of refuse to be invisible yeah. um you know so much of our economy is based on the contributions of workers that if you're not working those kind of jobs it's very easy to forget that it's 
human beings that made it possible, you know, <laughs> for you to, obviously manufacturing in every, every object that we encounter, but, you know, this is a globalized thing. But, but even here um, in the United States, you know, I think the, the low-wage service sector is, um, is really foundational in, in our economy. And, you know, it's people who, the, the film is about people who just sort of refuse to be victims yeah. and they refuse to be invisible. And it, it's, they, they become empowered individually and collectively. I mean, the, the, there's a, it's kind of a plot-based film, but there's also these character transformations that yeah. happen over the course of it. Because none of these none of these folks was interested in politics before this. They don't come from particularly, you know, act, active or, or political backgrounds. Um, so it's really a story of ordinary people kind of becoming transformed and um, and achieving some really interesting things. Mahoma is obviously a great example of that. So, um, and others in the film, uh, the gentleman who was the dishwasher, he's introduced yes. as the dishwasher. Margarito. Mar- he's amazing. I mean, I just, he there's is. sort of this quiet tra- transformation. I love, I just loved his, his sensibility, his presence on camera. He just brings, he's one of those people that brings so much sort of immediate gravitas. I, I don't like using that word, but he, he brings that certain, there's a certain something about, here's a guy who works his ass off every day who asks nothing more than just to be treated with some respect and it's just you know those are the kind of things that uh, I mean it really tears at you when you when you think about this is his life and and uh, you know uh, what a wonderful person he is uh, so just to see that and he's supporting his family yeah. in Mexico I mean it's really about the necessity of he comes from a, a part of Mexico yeah. um, that has been, you know, the economy there has been really decimated in the wake of NAFTA in the 90s. And so, you know, he's part of that wave of migration to the United States that from Mexico that uh, really is the result also of our policies, which is, is something, you know, as citizens of the United States, I think it's really important to remember. And so, you know, these are people who are just trying to you know, build a better life for their families. And um, oh. if the minimum wage, you know, he, the minimum wage in Mexico is $6 a day. In the U.S., it's, you know, seven twenty-five an hour. You know, imagine if, if the minimum wage in, in Canada was $100 an hour. I think a lot of people would be, you know, crossing the border <laughs> illegally to work up there. If you could get a job as a dishwasher and make $100 an hour, <laughs> you know, yeah. I'd consider it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I've, I've kept you a, a lot longer than I expected to, and I really appreciate your time. I'm just going to end. I want to end our discussion. By the way, we're speaking with co-director, uh, producer, and uh, cinematographer of the film The Hand That Feeds um, on a couple of things. First of all, the film is receiving tremendous recognition across the, the board, certainly in the uh, film festival circuit. Winner at the uh, Audience Award at Full Frame, winner at uh, the Doc NYC Audience Award, winner at uh, uh, AFI Docs, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on. Obviously, very encouraging, must have been, must feel great. But the one thing that caught my attention was this film was uh, screened. Am I correct? Screened at the White House? Uh, Actually, the film, the, the entire film was not screened at the White House, but a, a short that we did for the New York Times Opdoc series was screened there as part of an event they had honoring um, leaders in the low-wage worker field. 
So that happened last summer. But we have screened actually at the National Labor Relations Board, mm-hmm. and they are using the film as uh, as a teaching tool in uh, throughout their field offices in, in the different states. So that's that's interesting. But um, oh, we good. hope to be back in touch with the with the White House about doing a yeah, I, the full film there. See if you get in on one of their Friday night screenings here or something. <laughs> bring the whole cabinet in there as well. Yeah. well I, I really thank Rachel Lears. Thank you so much. And uh, again, um, the, the hand that feeds and really uh, Moama and, and all of the people involved, just, uh, just uh, remarkable in the sense that they hung together and they, and that they, they stayed focused and they had a lot of other people helping a, as well. And it's just good to see, uh, you know, the good people win now and then and uh, i don't know how they're all doing now i assume and i hope that they're all doing as well they they are all doing well um they are uh they're still working at the store, but I, I don't know if we've uh, already given away. Yeah, much, well, okay. But, uh, uh, well, we may edit good. this part here. <laughs> uh, we will. Good. I don't want to say, but yeah, no, anyway, uh, it's, it's again, and, but the, the, the fun is, is in the telling of the story too. It's, 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 it's uh, all, all the things I said earlier, it's, it's a, a great film and um, thank you. Well, thanks so much for inviting me to be on. It's a pleasure speaking with you. All right, Rachel. Rachel Lears, co-director, producer, cinematographer, along with Robin Blotnick, uh, the uh, director, co-director of The Hand That Feeds. Thank you so much for being on Film School. Thanks. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.